that song doesn't uh, get you fired up and you can't sing it to the top of your lungs, I, I just don't know. I mean, maybe Walking Dead season four is taking auditions right now or something. But, uh, but as uh, Matt said, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at the ring. Um, and I'll be speaking to you tonight. So I need to apologize from the beginning. If you see me looking down a lot, I have a lot of stuff I want to say, um, and I don't want to miss it. And also, I don't want to chase a lot of rabbits. Uh, so if you see me looking down, uh, forgive me. But if you want to, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 6, verse uh, 22. Uh, that's where we're going to start. So right now in John chapter 6, uh, a little background before we get to verse 22. We've got uh, two miracles that, that Jesus is doing, and we've all heard it. This is nothing new. Even if you know, you've never been to church, you don't know much about the Bible, there's too many paintings. Uh, if you look through books, these are generally kind of some of the paintings you see, religious paintings. But what we've got, the, the first miracle is the uh, beginning of the chapter. We've got Jesus feeding the 5,000, some people say it really might have been more upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people. But what we have here is a miracle in which he does in front of a lot of people. So a lot of people, we can assume at this time during history, they're hungry. What does Jesus do? He gets a, a boy's lunch, makes enough food for you know, 5,000, maybe 15,000 to 20,000 people. Performs a miracle in front of a lot. A lot of people, a lot of people saw him. Next thing he does, he sends the disciples off on a boat to go across the sea to Capernaum. And while they're doing that, he goes off to pray. And the next miracle we see is one that he does just in front of his disciples. Small crowd, um, you know, only they're the ones that see it. So they're in a the boat, they're going across. And the wind comes, it gets a little, little crazy. The disciples are scared. And what do they see? They see Jesus, but he's not coming on a boat. He's walking on the water, Right. Um, he gets into the boat and he gets them to the other side. So now we get to the part of the story, verse 22. Now, if, if I'm one of those people that just saw this happen, uh, I just saw Jesus out of a boy's lunchbox feed upwards of 15,000 people, I don't know that it would be something that you could just let slide. Um, you probably wouldn't be able to sleep at night. So the next morning, a portion of the people... They come and they wanted to know where Jesus had gone. So on the surface, when you look at this, you say, okay, this could be a good thing. Jesus did something for you, so I'll follow him. That's probably, that's probably good ministry, right? Well, when we look at the passage, we'll see that there's something wrong here. So we'll go ahead and we're going to read verse 22. Zach, this thing is a lot lower. <laughs> I wish it was a little taller. <laughs> All right, verse 22. Um, on the next day, <clears throat> excuse me, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten, uh, eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. 
So when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come? Probably a better translation or a lot more translations would have that as, um, how did you get here? Um, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father sets his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So I feel like the, the subject matter is, for tonight is extremely important. Um, one, if, if you are not a follower of Christ, the subject matter tonight will keep you from heaven. Um, on the other hand, if you are a follower of Christ, the subject matter will stop you from growing to be like Christ. Okay? So I think a lot of times when you hear something like that, you say, well, well what could that be? Um, this isn't going to be like a, well, uh, if I do A and B, then C and D happens. It's not a what-if sermon. It's not, a, not like a heaven's gates, hell's flame um, sermon. So this is something that I think day-to-day that we all struggle with and we may not know. I know I struggle with it a lot uh, in my life. But we're going to talk about motives tonight. So what are your motives? Um, that's what we're going to hit on. So behavior is what we do, right? All right our motives are why we do that. Okay? Everybody good? I'm going to flip my paper. <laughs> so we live in a culture that says that our significance is in what we do. Um, everything on the outside. So what you wear, the car you drive, your job, how much money you have. Um, we're encouraged to live on the outside. But the thing is, Christ sees everything that's on the inside. Um, and that's how we're judged. We're judged about what is on the inside. Um, so... When you think about it, uh, there's no way to, to pull punches. When you look at it, what's on the inside, we're just so much more wicked on the inside, right? I mean, on the inside, you can fake things. You can think thoughts. Nobody knows them. They don't know what you're saying. Uh, we can put on different masks. Um, you can be one way with one group of people, another way. A different. You can basically be a, a functional chameleon, okay? And this is an empty way to live. Um, it's not the right way to live. So remember what I said, this can keep a non-believer out of heaven, and it can keep a believer from growing in Jesus. So one of the things I was thinking about, and uh, this might be one of the rabbits I didn't want to chase, but I'm going to say it anyway. So uh, like when, when looking through this, the thing I kept thinking uh, really the, la- the last week when I sat down and really started trying to hammer out what I was going to talk about is, you know, we love it when Jesus answers our prayers, but we hate it when he answers our motives, right? So... When Jesus is answering prayers, we love it. You know, we're, we're praying more, we'll be in community more, we'll be talking more. But prayer is a two-way conversation, and a lot of times, we just talk at God. But whenever He initiates a, a conversation with us, we normally don't like that. What's the reason? Because generally, if He starts a conversation with you, He wants to deal with some stuff, right? It's kind of hard. Um, so why this is important? The crowd finds Jesus and they ask him, how did you get here? So this is the part of the story, and I don't think I'm the only person that, that would think this, but you know like when you've seen a movie, you've seen the same movie 40 times, you know what's about to happen, 
But in your head, you just wish, like, I wish this would happen. And you, sometimes you almost psych yourself up to be like, this, this is going to happen differently this time, and it doesn't. But this story is one of those where every time I read it, like, they say, um, how did you get here? I want him to tell them. I want him to say, well, I walked on water and just completely freak them out. Um, I mean, how, how do you top that? How do you top that? Well, disciples, they're out on the water. The waves came. Uh, I mean, I made the water. I walked on it. I got onto the other side. Bam. But he doesn't, he doesn't go there. And the reason is he knows what's going on inside of them. Okay? So before we get further in the text, um, if you're a note taker, uh, like Josh says sometimes, tonight is your night. It is your night. Uh, I've got this broken down into three different sections where you can take some notes. Uh, so this first one is a list. Um, and this list, if, if you've been in church, uh, even if you haven't been, there's nothing profound that's going to come from this list. Uh, but this is a list, common but lethal motives for following Christ. Okay? Um, so the list are lethal. In other words, these are motives that are common, but none of them can save. Okay? Makes sense? And that's bad news for something to be so common. So number one on the list. Following Jesus to avoid hell, but not wanting Him. Alright, this is a very, very common motive for people to follow Christ. Um, Jesus talked about hell in the New Testament 12 more times than He did heaven. Okay? So, unlike... You know, the past two years, there's been a lot of Christian books coming out saying that, you know, I, I don't know that Jesus believed in hell. I don't know the hand do. Um, I think there's too much imagery uh, in the Bible that describes hell. And it just, it's not a good place. Um, I think another thing to remember, too, is that, you know, the Bible is God's way to communicate to puny us. So when you look at that, the way we perceive hell, that... To me, that would mean the real thing has to be infinitely, infinitely, infinitely worse than anything we can read or comprehend. So we find ourselves saying, well, I don't want to go there. So what do we do? I will follow Jesus. That is a, it's a common lethal motive for following Jesus, but that one thing does not save. You know, people follow Jesus just to avoid hell. That is not save. Uh, number two. Following Jesus as a means to attain something that you perceive to be of greater value. All right, so following Jesus as a means to attain something you perceive of greater value. So this is where we think that we can pimp Jesus. I said pimp, that's right. Uh, you know, this is where we say, okay, uh, I will follow Christ if that means that I can find the person I'm going to marry. Um, I, I will follow Christ... If it's a mean to a better career, I will follow Christ because he'll have me a big house, a couple of cars. Um, this is a false gospel. This gospel also does not save. <clears throat> Number three, following Jesus out of a cultural expectation. Uh, this is also ca called socialized religion. All right, so this is this is really big in high school and college circles. Um, you know, FCA is a big one that I think of back in high school. It's just, it's what you do. Um, you're not, you don't have the relationship, but 
Um, you know the Scripture. You know the Bible. Uh, you might serve on ministry teams, but you're still lost. It's just a social issue for you. Um, parents, give me your ears for a second, whether you're, you have a kid in nursery or high school. But right now, over 70% of students who grow up in the church after two to three years of graduating high school uh, have nothing to do with the church anymore. And the reason is because it's a socialized religion. Uh, they do what they're doing because it's what my parents want me to do. Uh, this is what my parents expect. This is what it means to be a good person. But once I'm out of the house, I'm done with it. 70%. That can't save. Number four. Following Jesus as a way to get through a crisis. Very, very common. This is probably one that you see more in your work, maybe some from some different friends. The way this one looks, you know, life is going great, everything's good, and all of a sudden, boom, bad news hits. I can't deal with this. What, what do I do? I'll turn to Jesus. Uh, I will go, I will find a church, and I'll get involved. Um, I'll just try religion. Uh, maybe somebody loses their job, has a physical ailment, any type of crisis. So during that time, they turn to the Word, they're having a great quiet time, we're in community, but as soon as the crisis is done, we're out. Um, there are certain people, and this is going to sound cynical, and I, please do not take it that way, but there are people that you can map if they're going through a crisis, just if you see them at church or in community group. And as soon as that crisis is over, they're out again until the next thing comes up. <clears throat> Number five, following Jesus to receive forgiveness for sin, but not wanting to forsake that sin. This is a big one. This is very, very common. So every culture in the world values forgiveness um, as some form of, of being noble. It may be practiced differently. It may be looked differently, but every culture in the world, forgiveness is a noble character to have, all right? Everybody loves forgiveness, right? The words, I forgive you, feel great. You know me, I'll, I'll take forgiveness. I want it in my back pocket. Let me shove it wherever I can get it. But the reality is, we want forgiveness for the sin, but we don't want to stop it. Right? I mean, common, common motives. <clears throat> in fact, a lot of people might say, well, it's, it's his job to forgive me for that sin. So why would I stop it? I mean, he's just going to keep dishing out. <clears throat> but this cannot save. Excuse me. Only one motive can save. Alright, so verse 25, they want to know how Jesus got there. And in verse 26, he answers. It says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So the first thing, this is list number two. What happens when Jesus confronts our motives? All right, what happens when Jesus confronts our motives? The first thing he does is he reveals the motives to us. So verse 26, he's saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, the only reason you got on the boats, um, the only reason you're on the shore right now, the only reason you're talking to me is because I filled your stomachs. He's revealing their motives. <clears throat> Uh, ringers, hope you don't mind, I just gave everybody a nickname. We're ringers. Um, but 
You can't walk with Christ without Him revealing your junk. It's just a reality. If you say you're a believer and you're never wrong and you're never repentant, then you're not walking with Christ. That's the reality of it. He reveals. He reveals your motives. So I started thinking back, back when I was in high school out in Central, or the Dirty Sea, as I used to call it, um, we got in this, this crazy thing with our friends where pretty much all of us drove uh, Ford Rangers. Um, mine was called the Silver Soldier. We had Rowdy Red, and we all had nicknames for our Rangers. But we would all get together, and we'd get ready to go. And we went through this phase where we would take, uh, it was when LED lights were, were kind of first coming out, so you would see all these cars coming, it looks like their headlights were blue. So what we'd do is we'd go get wax paper. I mean, we'd get pink, we'd get green, any color, and we would just, bam, put it on our headlights. And to the point where people would stop and, man, where'd you get those lights? Well, actually, it's just wax paper. Um, but uh, we, w- we had black lights in our trucks, too, and we would have the newest Bone Thugs and Harmony ready to go. <laughs> Uh, we all miss our Uncle Charles, y'all. Uh, but I mean, we, we'd get in our wide leg pants, get in our Doc Martens. Uh, we'd cut them down the side because apparently they weren't wide enough just so they fit further over our Doc Martens. Uh, put so much gel in your hair and just spike up the front where you had this thing right here. And then, then you, get in, you get in the Silver Soldier, click on the black light, and you're filthy. The black light... That's, that's the same thing Christ does, is He just reveals. That's right. That was a good connection. <laughs> was that a good connection or what? <laughs> I mean, I can wrap some crucial conflict if you don't like bone thugs. <laughs> so they ate their share of the food, but they never looked at the source of the food. They completely missed it. So what we are doing is completely different from why we are doing it. So... so what we're doing here, completely, completely normal. We're in a room, um, bad carpet, bad painting. Uh, in the United States, in this cultural phenomenon, we would call a worship service. But why we are here is completely different from what we are doing. And that's what Jesus looks at. The why is what the Lord sees. Uh, how many of us have ever had a time when... Your, your prayer life is going great. Uh, you're praying prayers. Uh, you feel like they're theologically sound, like they're straight from Scripture. You're just in such a good spot. And then you have that small voice that says, I hear what you're saying to me, but why do you keep looking at those things on the computer? Um, I hear you communicating with me, but why do you put down on people who are made in my image? When we follow Christ, He reveals our motives. You can't hide them. He sees them in technicolor. All right, number two. <clears throat> Not only does he reveal our motives, he also challenges them. So verse 26 and 7, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him God the Father has set His seal. One of the commentaries I read kind of summed this up. 
It said, uh, because their fixation was on the food and not on Jesus, they have to continually work and labor because they have detached themselves from the person that the food came from. This is not a gospel that says you have to labor and work to earn Christ's love. Maybe, excuse me, a term that uh, we would all understand at the ring better would be, you know, it's a false narrative. It's what we've been doing in community groups. False narrative, false narratives. But there are some of us who your gospel is this. I have to work and work and work. I have to claw and claw and claw my way up just so God can look at me and say, you know what? You have done a great job. You can enter my heaven. And the reality is, if that's the gospel, nobody gets in. If that's the gospel, none of us get in. Now, some of us are just tired. We labor, we work, we're stressed, and we're just living a life that's upside down. Jesus challenges those motives. <clears throat> um, one thing this verse is not saying in 27, uh, this is not saying that to be an obedient disciple, that you don't have to labor, and I think we can all pull from that. Um, but we all labor. Um, Even if you don't get paid, everyone labors. Um, Essentially, the first first commandment in the garden essentially is for Adam to work the land, literally to work the garden. Uh, Work and labor are a good thing. They may be harder on this side of the fall, but it's a good thing. Kind of chase one of those rabbits again real quick. Uh, There's a term that, that we've kind of adopted that just needs to go away. Uh, the term is full-time Christian service. All right, so, so what that term would, would mean to most of us is say, if you get your check, or if your check has a church's name on it, then you're in full-time Christian service. But as followers of Christ, we are all in full-time Christian service, right? We are all ministers of the gospel. We are all the priesthood of the believer, all of us. Not, not staff, not volunteers. If you are a follower of Christ, you are in full-time Christian service. Done deal. As a believer in Christ, you get no retirement. We all labor. Rabbit done. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, uh, just to go back, you know, if you keep looking at that verse and you say, and Nate, you can put those uh, verses up there, and uh, you don't have to turn to them, but... Uh, just so you know that he's not saying that to be obedient. You don't have to labor. Um, Ephesians 4.28 Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And you got 2 Thessalonians 3.10 This is Paul again. Uh, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Um, so labor is a good thing. Uh, he's challenging what they were labor, laboring for in this verse. They were laboring for things that are not eternal. All right, so the, the third one. He reveals our motives, he challenges them, but then he redefines our motives. So verse 28 and 29. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, This is the work of God 
that you believe in Him who He has sent. That is the work of God. He redefines for them what their motive should be. So what is that motive? Uh, There's only one motive that can save, and that motive is Christ. That's it. He redefines for them. This is your motive, and this is what your motive should always be. It's Christ. He he says, uh, believe, labor, work, trust in Him. I've set my seal of authentication on Him. He's our motive. He redefines for them what their motive is, and that's the only motive we have is Christ. So... So we've, we've broken down the, the passages. We see, okay, he, he reveals our motives. He challenges our motives. He redefines our motives. So, so how can I apply that practically? I mean, if that wasn't enough, uh, most of us labor and work are some, some form of another. We all know what it means. So the third list, this is practical application for that. So Christ is our motive. That's our only motive. All right. How do we labor and work in such a way that never detaches ourselves from our primary motive of Jesus? How do we labor in such a way that never detaches ourselves from our primary motive of Jesus? Number one, your spiritual formation governs how you work. Early on in Christ's ministry, he was taken into the desert uh, and he was tempted by the adversary. And the Bible says that... Um, He would always go to lonely places, but when he's tempted for those 40 days, what does he turn to? He turns to the Scripture. Um, There was never a time when he was detached from Christ, and he still turns to those Scriptures during that battling. So how are you doing in the Word, believers? Um, How's your prayer life going? Um, How are you doing in community? These are all spiritual formations that govern how you would work. But what normally happens to us is just the opposite. Instead of the spiritual formation governing how we work, our work life governs our spiritual formation, right? Um, You know, you can think of conversations you may have had with people or even yourself. Like, I know this is a conversation I have with myself all the time, driving to work. You know, how's your prayer life going? Um, How are you doing in the Word? And then then what's, what's generally the answer? Uh... Kind of, kind of shaky. Well, then you get the next question. Why? The dreaded why. And well, what's generally the answer? Well, I'm, I'm so busy. I just don't have enough time. I have this and this going on. Uh, one thing that I tell the youth all the time when we're talking about this is we say things to Christ He would never say to us. He wouldn't tell us, I don't have time. No, I'm working too hard. Just, uh, you know, I'll get to you another day. So your spiritual formation governs how you work. Number two, your joy provides the stability in your work. Uh, This is literally the rebar, this is the spine of what you do, it's your joy. Um, In other words, our joy is not in the check. Um, Our joy is not in the actual job we have. It's not in our coworkers. It's not in our boss. Um, our joy is planted in history in the cross. That's our joy. That's what keeps us motivated for work. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, we probably all heard the story of Nehemiah. If you haven't, here's the, the, the Cliff Notes version. So 
Uh, the city's been destroyed. All the walls around have been destroyed. So Nehemiah comes in and they, they start rebuilding the city. They start putting infrastructure back in place. And once they finish, they have this huge celebration. And uh, I, I can just imagine they're in there, they're celebrating, maybe even getting a little pompous with their celebration. You know, hey, look what, look what the Lord has done through us. I mean, look at these walls. We put all these walls together. And then what happens next? Nehemiah pulls out the scroll and he starts reading and all the people are cut to the heart. And they say, what must we do? And what's his answer? He rolls up the scroll. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. All right. Your joy in the gospel is what provides stability in your work. Number three, uh, this may be the hardest one. You see work as an act of worship. Uh, In Ephesians, Paul tells them to work as unto the Lord, right? It's a hard one to swallow, but you see the labor you do each day as, as worship. If that is your job, worship. If it's playing with your kids, cooking supper, doing laundry, labor is worship. Uh, the reason that is hard for us to swallow is because we don't see Christ as our boss, right? That's the reason that one becomes so hard. It's hard for me. Um, but when Christ is our boss, that, that worship comes naturally because you don't want to mess up anything for Christ as your boss. It also means that we treat our coworkers with dignity and respect, not like other people would treat them. Christ is our boss. Your labor is an act of worship. <clears throat> Number four, you see your work as a field to expand Christ's glory. This one's simple. It's just obedience. It's what we're all called to do. We're here for one thing, Christ's glory. That's it. So if that means you're playing with your kids... You're doing it for Christ's glory. If you're in some high-rise somewhere, shooting emails, doing paperwork, it's all for Christ's glory. Simple. That one's really fast. Number five. You see your work as a way that Christ is making you look more like Himself. Uh, I'm going to read a a part of Dallas Willard's uh, The Divine Conspiracy. Um, Taylor actually sent me this after, after I sent the outline of what I was going to be speaking on. And it just goes perfectly. And I don't know if I can have Dallas Willard backing me up, then shoot, I'm, I'm good with it. Uh, so this is from Dallas Willard, Divine Conspiracy. But let us become as specific as possible. Consider just your job, the work you do to make a living. This is one of the clearest ways possible of focusing upon apprenticeship to Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is, is crucially to be learning from Jesus how to do your job as Jesus himself would do. New Testament language for this is to do in the name of Jesus. Once you stop to think about it, you can see that not to find your job to be a primary place of discipleship is to automatically exclude a major part, if not most, of your waking hours from life with him. It is to, it is to assume to run one of the largest areas of your interest and concern on your own or under the direction and instruction of people other than Jesus. But this is right where most professing Christians are left today, with the prevailing view that discipleship is a special calling, 
having to do chiefly with religious activities and full-time Christian service. Term we can throw out, right? He goes on to say, One who does not know this way of job discipleship by experience cannot begin to imagine what release and help and joy there is in it. And to repeat the crucial point, if we restrict our discipleship to special religious times, the majority of our waking hours will be isolated from the manifest president from the manifest presence of the kingdom in our lives. Those waking hours will be times when we are on our own, on our job. Our time at work, even religious work, will turn out to be a holiday from God. On the other hand, other hand if you dislike or even hate your job, a condition epidemic in our culture, the quickest way out of that job or to joy in it, to do it as Jesus would. This is the very heart of discipleship, and we cannot effectively be an apprentice of Jesus without integrating our job into the kingdom among us. Alright, so you see your work as a way that Christ is making you look more like Himself. I'm not not putting down the ring or community groups when I say this, so don't take it that way, but... Um, and I, I think they're great. Great stuff happens at the ring. Great stuff happens in our community group. But if we're being honest with ourselves, we are most sanctified when we're at work, right? Work is where you find out if we really believe what's being taught on Sundays and in community groups. People who you work with, who drive you crazy, it could be a neighbor. I mean, that might be Christ's greatest, greatest agent in your life of making you more like Him. You know what we do? We're supposed to thank Him for that. We thank Him for it. Alright? If we strive to look like Christ in our work lives, it's amazing how we can persevere through difficult times. So why are you here? So why are you here? Um, it's It's a good question. You know, why are you here? Um... Man, you can go ahead and come up if you want. <clears throat> but, like I said in the beginning, it, it's something that I think happens in everyday life that we either don't think about, we just don't put enough into, but the reality is, if you're not a follower of Christ, it'll keep you from heaven. Your motives will keep you from heaven. Uh, the good news is there's hope. If you're not a believer, there's hope. Um, you know, we have... We have a Christ who died through and through for us, motives and all. Um, he, he died for not only our sinful actions, but our, our sinful inclinations. Right? Uh, followers of Christ, how are your motives doing? How are you doing on the inside? You know, do, you, do you have that one motive? Is Christ your motive which everything else revolves around? You know, do, do you run to Him? You should. Like I said, He sees everything in technicolor, so, you know, that's why you should run after Him. He already knows. It should be easy to go to a Christ who already knows what you're going through, so then you lay it at His feet. So we're going to finish up the way we, we normally do at the ring, by singing. Um, and the, the two songs we're going to do, I, I think, to me, they're just two great songs that are easy just to, just to sing. Um, you know, if you need to talk to somebody, 
find somebody and talk to. There's plenty of people here who you can talk to. Um, so it's kind of where we're in. So if you want, you can go ahead and stand and I'll pray. And then we're just going to sing. Lord, I thank you for tonight, and I thank you for everyone that's here. Um, I just thank you for, for what you've done on the cross for us, for all of our motives. You've died for them all, Lord, and I just, I just thank you for that. Lord, I just pray that if we need to turn and repent, if we need to, to come to you, that, that we run to you, Lord. Um, there's re- no reason not to. You already know. It should be easy for us to say, hey, hey, God, I got this thing. I know you already know about it, but I, ju- I just want to repent of it. Well, we thank you for what you're going to do the rest of the night, the rest of the week. Uh, pray that, that we can go and labor and work and never lose focus of our primary motive of you. Lord. We pray that you're the only motive we have. And we pray that when you do reveal and you challenge us, that we, redef- we redefine that motive ourselves. In the name of pray. Amen.